Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Good morning, hello. You guys are looking good. Welcome to the Vineyard. Really glad that you're here. My name's Aaron. If we haven't met, I hope you'll come up and say hello at some point. I uh, just want to highlight from the announcement video quickly, Next Step Dinner. That's one week from today. We meet on Sunday evening. Uh, if you're new or newish to the church, maybe you got some questions, maybe you want to get a bit more involved, maybe uh, you want to meet some folks, uh, the staff will be there. We hang out, share a meal. It's relaxed but informative. Have a good time. Free barbecue. I don't know. What more do you want? Um, so if you would, uh, register for that, and we'll see you there one week from today. So, um, man, it's I feel just the exact same way I did in the first service, and I, I think it's more than just a carryover. Um, all throughout worship, in the first service and in this service as well, um, there's just, I, I can't put my finger on it, but I just sense the Holy Spirit is moving around the room and moving in individuals, and I feel like it's sort of landing on different people in different ways. I know this is really vague. I could be wrong about all of it, but... Um, I just sense that there's some people who want to weep, and there are some people who want to shout, and maybe those, maybe those things are colliding a little bit in the air. I don't know, but um, I just want to encourage you as we move into the message, because this stirring it happened in the first service, and this one as well. I can't define it. I don't know if it's more about the worship or more about the, the sermon, or again, or if I just didn't eat breakfast. I don't know, but um, we, I want to ask you to be particularly attuned to your own spirit and just mindful of what the Lord might be saying to you or how he might be stirring in you individually. Um, the, the message is a bit of a shotgun, like it's going to hit different people in different ways. So maybe that's what it's about. But I want, I want to ask you, um, as much as you're able, to be mindful of what the Spirit might be saying to you, um, either already uh, and then also moving forward. So I'd love it if you would do that. Let me take a minute to pray. We'll jump in. Holy Spirit, please come. Continue to come as we sang. Oh, Lord, you make us aware of your presence, more and more aware of what you're doing in the room, what you're doing to us individually, God, as we, as we look to lean into just your power and your presence in this place, God. We don't want to miss what you have for us, God. Lord, settle our minds, clear our thoughts so that we're able to uh, receive from you or whatever you have. Give us Ears to hear, Lord Jesus. Give us ears to hear. We ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done uh, in this room even as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, scapegoat. Uh, week three. There's no punching at all in this message, I'm happy to tell you. Um, one more week on this scapegoat idea. I know we took a week off from it. It's a little strange, but whatever. Um, so one more week, but today a really different approach. So far, we've been talking about basically sort of big theological concepts, the atonement and things like that, how our sin gets dealt with and sort of big concepts like that. Uh, today, much more practical, um, much more 
social and psychological as well. So um, again, just the same concepts. We're going to build on those concepts and, and think about, okay, what does it look like to apply these things into our lives? Um, so we, we've been talking uh, about the scene in Leviticus where Aaron, the high priest, on, on the Day of Atonement, it was called, or Yom Kippur, um, would have two goats. And one of those goats was sacrificed uh, to the Lord to atone for the sins of people. And the other goat, the scapegoat, would have uh, the angst and the tension in the community symbolically placed on the head of that goat, and that goat was then released into the wilderness. It escaped. That's why it's called um, the scapegoat. And since, so since the very first day of this, the scapegoat was a way of symbolically dealing with the angst, the frustration, the bitterness that builds up in a community. Um, we harm each other. We let one another down. When that happens, it creates something that wasn't there before, okay? If I harm you, I'm not going to punch you in your face or anything like that, but if I harm you, then there's now angst there that wasn't there before. There's frustration there. There's hurt there, and that has to be dealt with, and we got to do something with it, and if we don't, it begins to build up over time. Uh, it has a way of leaving residue. We carry it with us as we go, and so we have a need to release our, our angst, and it drives so much of, of human behavior in, in lots of ways, in subtle ways and not so subtle ways, in conscious ways and unconscious ways. What happens is we make scapegoats out of one another. I feel this frustration, this, this tension. It needs to go somewhere. I don't know what to do with it. And either consciously or unconsciously, I move it onto the head of someone or something else or some group of people. And I shift my frustration onto them. I scapegoat them. This drives so much of human behavior. I'm going to tell you a very dumb example from, unfortunately, me. This past week, just the last um, few days, there is, uh, there is so dumb. This affects my life none. None. There's an NBA player who just drives me nuts. He's just such a relentless crybaby and I cannot handle it and it happens all the time and there's always these ridiculous I'm the center of the world antics and it just drives me nuts well anyway last week or so he's sort of you know the dust is kicked up again because again his ridiculous selfish antics all over again and it's like oh it bothers me and I guys again the ripple effects of this man's choices the ripples do not get to me it doesn't affect me in any way. It's a zero. It's nothing in my life. And yet, throughout the day, I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, that guy. I'm brooding, ruminating throughout the day about one crybaby superstar basketball player. Why? He doesn't know I exist. He will never know that I exist. His choices affect me none whatsoever. And yet I'm brooding about it, like as if there's nothing else I could be doing with my thoughts or my time. I could be like, I don't know, praying for you, but I'm not. Instead, I'm being mad at this random person who affects me zero, okay? So what's that about? Well, I, I, I sort of recognized that. I was like, what am I doing? This is the dumbest thing. Why? Why do I care? Why do I care? And so if you've been around for a minute, you know about this. Um, I decided to get my time machine. Y'all remember my time machine? It only goes forward and at regular speed. So I get my time machine, and I think for a minute, and I'm like, all right, what is going on here? And it took about two seconds of just thinking about it to realize I'm not mad at that random crybaby. I mean, he's a crybaby, but that, I'm not mad about that. 
he became symbolic for me of shifts in our society that I am actively grieving. Like there's stuff going on that grieves my heart. I see it expressed in this person, whether I'm right or wrong, who knows? It doesn't even matter whether I'm right or wrong. What I'm choosing to do is shift my angst because I don't know what to do with it. I'm frustrated about what's happening broadly in our society and I'm moving it over. I'm shifting it onto the head of someone else. I'm making a scapegoat out of that NBA player. Does that make sense? We do this all the time. Drives so much of human behavior. And negativity in particular drives scapegoating. Now, this is an example. It's been very, very clearly demonstrated again and again. Um, let, let's, let's pretend that everybody in this room is a total stranger. You don't know a single person in the room at all, and you just, you're just locked in here with us. Some of you might be like, that's exactly how I feel right now. And if that's the case, get in a small group. <laughs> and you can leave whenever you want. It's fine. Um, but let's just say nobody knows anybody. We have nothing in common. Why are we here? There's nothing to build on. There's no community. There's no shared anything. And I think to myself, I want to do something about this. I'm in a sea of strangers. I want to connect with the people in this room. Now, what has been clearly demonstrated is that if I start by expressing angst or fury, it will be vastly more effective in creating connections and bonds with people in the room than if I say something kind or thoughtful. This is clearly the case. I will elicit a much stronger response in a room of strangers if I say, I hate Joe Biden, or I hate Donald Trump, whatever. If I say that, I'll get a response, and I'll begin to connect with people around me who agree or disagree. If I say, on the other hand, I really appreciate the way Joe Biden handled this such situation, or the way Donald Trump handled this situation, I appreciated their approach in that. That's not going to work so well. There won't be as much connectivity hand made by that. When, when, when we're with people we don't have community with, we're much more likely to establish that community around something we mutually hate than we are around something that we mutually appreciate or like or enjoy. Anthropologists have been pointing this out in human behavior for decades. Like, that's how you do it. That's what you do. The emphasis is the negative. You connect around the negative. You connect at the expense of other people. That's what you do. And no one listened. And then social media came along. And then the anthropologist said, see? I told you. And now you can't miss it. And then the algorithms take over and just enhance that effect all the more. If I state something positive, then people see in me an opportunity to share a perspective with someone else. If I state something negative, then people still see the opportunity to share a perspective with someone else and the opportunity to blow off some steam and to spew some angst. And people almost always choose the second one. And all of that is just a form of scapegoating. You know, in the last example, you know, Biden or Trump, you know, right? They, they become the scapegoat in this case, shifting our angst onto them. Or in the example before that, some random basketball player I decided to shift my angst onto. We gather around shared frustrations. We blow off steam in the process. It's scapegoating. Shifting our, go, uh, shifting our angst onto the head of others 
just like the high priest symbolically placed the angst on the head of the goat. And it doesn't even have to be right. We just need to release our tension, our anxieties, our frustrations. Um, they're like, they're like electricity in our homes. You know, you have an electrical system in your home. It's designed to move freely around the place. And our frustrations, they move freely around within us. Um, but the system is only designed to carry so much current. If that current keeps building, then some fuses are going to blow, right? And humans, we work the same way. We, we talked about this a lot in the last... Uh, little bit how in recent years, I think it's, it's undeniable, we've seen increased levels of angst in our society. Like, there's just, there, the, uh, the set point just seems to be raising and raising more and more frustration. And it's not hard to see that we've got more anxiety in the system than we can handle. And so this happens on an individual scale, but it also happens on a broad scale with huge amounts of people. We can look around just at the world and the way we're interacting with one another, and it's clear that we're looking more and more for scapegoats. We need someone to blame or groups to blame, and as a result, we're doing it more and more. So again, if you could just think of extreme examples over the last few years, you'll find plenty of them. So what's happening, again, on broad scales, um, the political left has blamed the political right. And vice versa. And white people have blamed black people. And vice versa. And poor people have blamed rich people. And vice versa. And the religious have blamed the non-religious. And vice versa. And on and on we can go. And all of it's blame shifting and buck passing. It's all scapegoating. And it's rising. You'll see it. But those are the, those are, especially on the broad scale, those are the really obvious examples of scapegoating. I mean, racism, for example, seems like the most obvious example of scapegoating, where we're going to shift our blame and our angst onto a whole group of people. Those are obvious. There are much more subtle ones out there. Um, as we, again, create community at the expense of other people. So I, I'll tell you another story in which I'm an idiot. I don't know why I keep telling these stories. Um, I was, I was dating Sharon. We've been dating for a while. I don't think we were yet engaged, but it was, we were going that way. I'm actively trying to convince this woman to marry me. Um, I, she was down in Florida. I was still up here. I would travel down to see her. Um, and I'd done that a number of times, but I hadn't yet met her brother, Chad. And so I made uh, a trip, and Chad was there. And as, you know, Chad's a, an important link in the chain in Sharon's life. I'm trying to convince the girl to marry me. So I really wanted to impress Chad. I wanted Chad to like me. I wanted to connect with Chad. I wanted her to be like, oh, yeah, I should marry this guy. He, he even likes my brother. So I'm, I'm like getting some time with him, and I'm intentionally like, like I'm just throwing little hooks out there in hopes that he'll catch them, you know, like just looking for something, some connection we can make. And we don't have a terrible amount in common. So I'm like whiffing again and again. It's like, hey, what about this? And it's like, nope, didn't work. Let's try another one. And he's a perfectly kind man, but we weren't able to like, it wasn't happening, right? And then just, I did something, it was really flippant and, uh, and it, was, it was playful and it wasn't mean or anything like that. Um, but I, I, made, I made some sort of a little joke at Sharon's expense. And Chad's eyes lit up. He got a big grin. He threw his head back and laughed. And I thought, boom, caught it. This is what we're doing. 
And so he just said another little playful thing back at Sharon's expense. And I was like, oh, it is funny. And we kind of did this back and forth. And it was happening kind of off and on while we were hanging out playing cards or eating whatever it was that we were doing. And I'm like, hey, this is working. And I'm looking over at Sharon and her face is saying something different, but I'm not sure what that's about. Because <clears throat> I think it's going great. You know, I'm winning. She loves me. Okay, so then, uh, like, we take a break or something, and she catches me in the hallway. And by the way, don't mess with Sharon, y'all. It's like, she ain't. Okay, so, and I didn't even know that. I was still learning, all right? And so she, like, catches me in the corner, puts her finger in my face, and I'm like, what is going on here? Like, this is, this is not hot. What is happening? And she goes, you are not going to bond with Chad over making fun of me. Oh, crap, I didn't know. And then so there's a part of me like, oh, I messed up. And there's another part of me that was like, she needs to lighten up. She's, that's not cool. And then I got a minute to think about it. You know, like she gave me a minute to think about it. And, I, and, and as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know what? Good for her. Good for her. She's like, no, 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 we're not doing this. I'm heading this off at the pass. You're my boyfriend. I'm not going to be your scapegoat. You are not going to connect with my brother at my expense. I thought, good for her. Good for her. So, again, we do this in subtle ways. Again, making jokes at the expense of others. And, and we do this in not-so-subtle ways like racism or hatred or, or demonizing our political opponents or on and on we could go. And what that does, it's important that you see it, it creates a cycle of victimization. Because the thing is, Generally speaking, the weak get scapegoated, not the strong, all right? I tried to scapegoat the strong, and she put me in my place, all right? But most people, frankly, don't have the resolve to do what Sharon did in that moment. Most people just take it. It's way safer to blame the weak than to blame the powerful. So we scapegoat the weak, creates a cycle of victimization. It's really obvious. If, if you're just absolutely furious with your boss, you're probably not going to vent that anger onto them. But the odds of you going home and yelling at your spouse or kicking your dog just went up significantly, didn't they? It's scapegoating. It's, I have this angst. I got to do something with it. I got to place it on somebody's head. And the angst needs a release. So we look for someone we could or take it out on, whether we realize it or not. So anyway, that's scapegoating, and we're trying, like I said, to get more practical today, and so I think there's a really obvious application, which is don't do that. If you're doing that, cut it out. Don't scapegoat innocent victims. Don't connect with people around shared anger or frustration. Don't build community at the expense of others. Cut it out, and the Bible agrees too. So there's that, but y'all know, know I'm not done, so... Um, with that said, and really, don't. Don't scapegoat people. Cut it out, okay? Stop it. But all that said, that's clear. I actually have a, a much, like much, much harder challenge to put in front of you today than, hey, don't do that. So <clears throat> remember there were I remind you, two types of atonements symbolized by the two goats. The first goat dies to atone for our sins against God. The second goat carries away the communal frustration to atone for the, the interpersonal messes that our sins inevitably create. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw, I hope you remember this, 
um, we saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of both sides of that equation, okay? The cross, Jesus was both goats. The cross made a way for us to be at peace with God. It made a way for us to be at peace with one another. Jesus was both the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. So anyway, with that in mind, what does it mean for us that Jesus, our example in everything, right? Christians, Jesus is our example in everything. What does it mean for us who have Jesus as our example in everything, what does it mean that he chose to become a scapegoat? Like, he didn't just avoid scapegoating other people, right? That was the first part. Cut it out, okay. But he became a scapegoat by choice in service to others. He absorbed the angst and the fury and the rage of hurting people. He did so in service to the people who were venting their rage upon him. He took it onto himself. He carried away the violence and the anger of, of people, of, of his persecutors, of his murderers, all by choice, and he did so as an innocent victim. So what does it mean for us to follow that example? It's a lot harder. Uh, I don't know how much you've read the Gospels. Uh, some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. You've read them a million times. Maybe some of, them, some of you haven't read them at all. Um, but <clears throat> there's something strange to me about the story of Jesus being crucified. And I've noticed it a bunch of times for a bunch of years. It's always bugged me. Um, I just felt like I was missing something. Like, why, why is this such a prominent feature in the story? It's been bothering me until I got a hold of this scapegoat framework. Um, I've, been, I've been confused by it. Now it's starting to make sense. I've been confused as I read the story of Jesus' crucifixion by all of the mocking and the taunting and the name-calling and the, the ridicule of Jesus in the process of his crucifixion. I mean, it, they just come to it again and again and again. And the authors of Scripture, they just they jump in and they just remind us over and over again about, oh, by the way, they were, they were mocking, they were ridiculing, they were, they were shaming. Um, so we read a little bit about it a, a couple of weeks ago. Remember, they put the scarlet robe on him, just like the scarlet ribbon was put on the head of the literal scapegoat. And then they started mocking him. But that was just the beginning. It was just a tiny sample. And then it continues the rest of the way. There are all these moments insulting and shaming. And this has confused me. Um, I mean, it happened, clearly, so it's part of the story. It should be in there. But it's this huge point of emphasis for the writers, like disproportionately so as far as where it fits within the rest of the story. And I've always wondered why, because, stay with me here, if you think about it, Jesus was the only person in the history of the world who wasn't insecure. The only one. See, we're all insecure. And so insults to us are incredibly damaging because, because our insecurity says, hey, maybe that's true. 
maybe those awful insults, maybe that that rejection is not just from them. Maybe it's symbolic of how everybody feels about me. Maybe it's about how, maybe it's how God feels about me. The reason why the insults of others are so damaging to others, is, damaging to us is because our insecurity says, I don't know, man, maybe they're right. Because we are afraid of ultimate rejection. That's what makes insults so painful. It's because of our insecurity. What if these things are true? But Jesus knew that their insults weren't true. He's the only person in the history of the world who knew his worth and knew his value, knew who he was ultimately. The only person ever to not be insecure. So why is it such a huge emphasis in Jesus' crucifixion story? Because it's not crushing to him like it is to us. I'm sure he didn't like it, but he's not crushed by it the way we would be. So why emphasize it so much? But now I I understand that the authors of Scripture are making sure we see how Jesus was demonstrating for us how to be a scapegoat. The authors of the story are highlighting the way that Jesus was again and again absorbing the unfounded angst of other people taking it on to himself, not retaliating, and as the original scapegoat did, carrying it away. He's showing us how it's done. That's why. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 says this, When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's the work that Christ did. And just in case, you, you might read that and go, well, yeah, you know, he didn't threaten, he absorbed, he, you know, he didn't return insult with insult. I get it. But, like, he's the king of glory and the son of God and the Messiah, and, like, sure, for him, but not for me. Just in case you went there, let me read you the two verses right before the verse I just read, then we'll read that one again. You ready? For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He was choosing to be the scapegoat, to absorb the anger and the ridicule and the accusations and the shame, and he was demonstrating to us how it's done because we're supposed to do the same. That's, that's hard. I want to acknowledge this is a lofty thing I'm putting in front of you. But I also want to say this. There's, there's no escaping it, folks. This, this idea of us absorbing the insults and the accusations and even the attacks of others for the sake of making peace, for the sake of doing justice and defending the weak, for the sake of doing the work of recon- reconciliation, It's really prominent in Jesus' teachings. So again, I referenced the Gospels earlier. Y'all remember the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount? I'll just read you a few few verses from a couple of spots. All Jesus' words, uh, Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are who are persecuted because of, the right, because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
Jesus says, you're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like there's this pattern of people scapegoating the righteous. It's, it's a good pattern to be a part of. Skip a good bit here now to the uh, end of that same chapter, verse 38. Jesus still teaching, still the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth. So just even, you know. Somebody takes it from you, you take it back. Verse 39, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Don't resist them. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat too. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Listen to this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There's this clear idea in Scripture that the people of God go the way of Jesus. And this real part of that is the way of a scapegoat to absorb and not retaliate, to show mercy and not violence, to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers, but makers of peace where peace doesn't exist. We make it. Escape, being a scapegoat is part of how we do it. I'm going to read you some stuff here from uh, an author named Roland, or Ronald uh, Rollhauser. And um, he writes about this in a book called Sacred Fire. Um, just want to highlight that book to you. It is a phenomenal book. Uh, just incredible, especially if you're looking to move forward in your walk with Jesus, like you're ready, you're ready to step up into spiritual maturity, take the next step. Um, Sacred Fire is a great guide for that. Um, uh, Rollheiser is Catholic, so he writes from a Catholic perspective. What that means is there's a ton of stuff I agree with. There's a good bit of things I don't agree with, you know, because of the differences there. But what he's teaching about life with Jesus is just, it's powerful and challenging, so I just want to recommend that book to you. Um, and he talks quite a bit about this idea of a scapegoat in that book. And also, just to bring it one layer back, the language he's using in that book, he's getting from a, from a thinker named Rene Girard. I say a thinker because I don't know what to call him. He's like an anthropologist and a sociologist and a psychologist, all, like all swirled into one. Like, I don't know, he's a theologian along with it. I was like, who is this guy? But he's brilliant, okay? Uh, and the stuff that he writes, fair warning, is like really heady. Like it's a slog to work through it, okay? Um, but really, his entire life, his entire thinking career was based around two ideas, and one of them is the idea of scapegoat. He wrote a book called Scapegoat. But the one where he talks about it most succinctly is this book called I See Satan Falling Like Lightning. Uh, tough book, but a really good read. So anyway, uh, Rollheiser, reflecting the ideas of Girard, that's the thing. He talks about this challenge to be scapegoats ourselves, and he gives a really great example and the example that he gives is connected to racism, which is where a whole lot of scapegoating has been going on for a long, long time. And it's an interview of a civil rights worker, 
and he doesn't give the name of, of who it is, and I tried to find it. I even found he was quoting an article. That article doesn't give his name, so I guess it was done anonymously. I'd love to know the person's name because they're kind of my hero. Um, but this person is being asked about what it's like to be in the throes of the civil rights movement and, and the often brutal collisions between black and white and being in the center of that in the 60s. Um, so this is, this is what he's asked. Um, isn't that dangerous work you are doing? It's true, he said. The hatred is vicious. The punishment is violent. Well, have you ever been hurt yourself? Yes. I've been spit upon, beaten with fists, with pipes, with chains, and left a bloody mess. Yeah, but you're pretty big. But weren't you able to protect yourself sometimes to fight back? Listen closely, guys. Yes, first I did fight back. I made some of them sorry that they had attacked me. But then I realized that by fighting back, I wasn't getting anywhere. The hatred coming at me in those fists and clubs was bouncing right off me back into the air. And it could just continue to spread like, ele like electricity. I decided not to fight back. I would let my body absorb that hatred so that some of it would die in my body and not bounce back into the world. I now see that my job in the midst of evil is to make my body a grave for hate. <laughs> that is so inspiring to me. I see my job to make my body a grave for hate. I'm not just going to let it bounce back and send the fury right back into the world. That's the job of a peacemaker. The, the work of someone who, think about it, not only refuses to make a scapegoat of others, but is also willing to be a scapegoat himself. As Christ was for us. To absorb the hate, to not retaliate, and to break the cycle of victimization. Again, I want to acknowledge how hard this all is. It is. Like what I'm talking about, I'm hesitant to even put it in front of you because it is such a high and holy calling. It is, and yet it's so clearly put before us by Christ himself, both in his words and in his example. Harken back to for thousands of years going back to the Day of Atonement. This is what Rollheiser said about this. It's extremely challenging. I'm, I'm going to read you a pretty long quote. I know it's easy to space out when I read for a bit, but try not to. It's really important. He said this, immediately after Jesus' death, his followers would ascribe the role of scapegoat to him, to Jesus. His death was understood as doing for them and for the world what a scapegoat did for a given community. Except in their understanding, it does not take away the tension and sin of the community by some type of psychological transference or spiritual magic, as did the ancient scapegoat. Rather, he takes away the tensions and sins of the community by absorbing them, carrying them, transforming them, and not giving them back in kind. Now, he's going to use a word picture here that's really helpful. So if you can, stay with me and picture it as I read. Jesus did this by functioning like a water filter. 
A filter takes in water full of toxins, dirt, and impurities, holds the toxins, dirt, and impurities inside of itself, and gives back only pure water. In looking at his death, they understood this. Jesus took in hatred, held it, transformed it, and gave back love. He took in bitterness, held it, transformed it, and gave back graciousness. He took in curses, held them, transformed them, and gave back blessing. Then he took in murder, held it, transformed it, and gave back forgiveness. In terms of moving toward deeper maturity, of moving from goodness to greatness, this invitation to become the filter that absorbs tension inside of the family, church, and community is perhaps the premier one. Indeed, it is the criterion for adult discipleship. It's not a question of being good or bad. Rather, it is a question of maturity. And he's asking this of us. Let's wrestle with it. How mature do you want to be? At what level do you want to carry your discipleship? How adult do you want to be? So he acknowledges, and I want to acknowledge it too, how hard this is. These are lofty ideals. But he, he still leaves the challenge hanging there as Jesus did. How serious are you really about being like Jesus, about being a scapegoat? Now, um, I'm going to wrap up just a minute here. I, I want to make one really important caveat about this before we shift gears. And you've got to hear it, okay? So stay with me. It's really important. I am not saying that you should allow yourself to be abused. So I want you to hear that. Um, there's a tension here. We've got to carry it. I, I cannot say it as well as Rollheiser did, so I'm going to quote him one, one last time, okay? <clears throat> but he says it so well. To love someone does not mean accepting abuse in the name of love. When we absorb abuse, even with the highest religious motives, we do not take away the sin, we enable it. Jesus confronted dysfunction, even as he gave himself over in love. Sometimes, the loving thing to do is not the gentle, accommodating, and long-suffering one. In the face of positive abuse or clinical dysfunction, Christian discipleship can demand hard confrontation and perhaps even a distancing of ourselves from the person or persons who are causing the tension. So I want you to hear that as well. I, we, we've got to hold on to both of these ideas of being a filter and what we're hearing now as well. It's an important counterbalance. Um, if, if we are going to, to any degree, follow Jesus' example in being a scapegoat, we will absolutely be faced with questions about what we should and should not be willing to absorb. Questions about when to confront, when to set boundaries, when even to distance ourselves from harmful people, okay? If you're going to do the scapegoat thing, you got to do this too. And I wish, gosh, I wish I had a formula to give you to tell you how to weigh those things. Uh, but I, I, I don't. I just don't. So instead, let me just say this, and please don't dismiss it as a thing I say all the time. you got to walk so closely with Jesus you got to walk with Jesus, man. If you're going to be a scapegoat and absorb the toxicity of the people around you and then not respond in kind, like you got to walk with Jesus left foot, right foot, day by day. Um, you got to pray for the ones who are hurting you. 
And then when you, as you wrestle with what you should and should not absorb in this, I just want to say this and don't run past it. There's wisdom in the counsel of many. Okay? Chances are, if you're caught in the fray of a decision like this, you're probably the least objective person available. And so this is why we have a church family. Okay? This is why we have emergency contacts. This is why we talk to people we love and trust. You talk to godly people and say, this is what I'm wrestling with. How should I proceed? And collectively, we discern how to take these next steps. There's not a formula for it. Every situation is different. kind of wish there was. But as we counter, hold that counterbalance there to not be abused, there's also just this clear command from the Lord that we would absorb and not retaliate. Okay, so uh, David, maybe you can come on up and help, help me finish this up. Um, so there's another question I want us to, I just want to leave hanging here. And this is... Guys, I'm going to ask the question, and usually my deal is I ask the question, and then I, I try to give you the answer. This time I'm going to ask the question and go, I don't know, I don't know. How can we be filters who absorb the tension and the ridicule and the angst and the hate, keeping the bad, returning the good, and not become poisoned ourselves? And I, I'll just tell you guys, I've been wrestling with this. I almost threw the message out. I almost said, just forget it. I'm not going to say it at all. Because I don't know exactly how to answer that question. And it feels like the answer I'm, I'm, I'm going to give, the, the way we're going to process this, I, it, it might sound like a cop-out to you, I, but I just think it's true. I just think it's true, okay? So how do, we, how do we absorb and take in without retaliating and giving it back and not ourselves become toxic? And... It, Please don't dismiss it. It is a divine work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it by white-knuckling and determination. You can't do it by externally processing or venting or releasing. Ultimately, what we are talking about is genuinely godly behavior that we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit and then by the work of the Spirit, you will not become toxic yourself. Guys, I know people like this. If you think about it, you do too. People who go into rooms and there's just, there's heat and there's toxicity and when they leave the room, it's gone. They absorb it. They neutralize it. They take it onto themselves and the people who were at odds, they find peace because there's someone who came in as a scapegoat, as an agent of reconciliation. They absorb it and they leave the room and the atmosphere there different than when they came. And those people, think about it, you know some of them, they're not more toxic because of it, it's less. The process, I don't know, it's entirely divine. It's the only reason why we can even consider doing this. The work of the Holy Spirit cleanses and purifies us in the process. And we end up the least toxic people when we do the work of scapegoat. Man, man, we, man, do we have to walk with Jesus in order to do it?